Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at, at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? John Middlecoff from the 3 and Out podcast. Brought to you live, not exactly live because we're recording it. Uh, by the Colin Coward Podcast Network. Coming up today, I went off the beaten path a little bit. I'm having my guy, Eric Burkhart, who's Johnny Manziel's agent. He represented Bradley Chubb this year in the NFL draft. He went number five overall to the Denver Broncos. Uh, he represents Case Keenum that signed a big contract this uh, this offseason with the Denver Broncos. I'll have him on just to kind of talk about his business. You know, he's a younger guy, how he got into it. Uh, how he's kind of how he dealt with Johnny, how he's developed in clients, some of the rules. Just kind of an interesting, interesting conversation that I, I thought a lot of you guys might enjoy. It's you know it's a thirty plus minute interview, uh, so I'll let that go. And, and at the end, I'll do like always the Middlecoff mailbag. If you go to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and in the review section, leave your questions, and, and I'll get to them at the end of the pod. I got a bunch. I might spread them out o- over the next couple weeks. Uh, and, and kind of mix them in as I do some of the as some of these guests. I'm, I'm going to have some guests on. Uh, it's the summer months. N- not as much coming out the NFL in terms of storylines because not anything's happening. It's you know in a perfect world nothing's happening because if something happens now, unless a guy signs a big contract, which Aaron Donald, Khalil Mack could, it's probably going to be an arrest. And you know we'll talk about that here. But if you're a team, you do not want that to happen. So let's get in to my interview with uh, with the agent, Eric Burkhardt. One of the most progressive agents I know, active on Twitter. See him all the time on Twitter. Uh, in in Texas right now, Eric Burkhardt of Select Sports. What's going on, my man? How you doing? 
How are you, John? Man, huge fan of the pod. You're doing some great things, putting out some great content. So I love, I listen to everything. I consume as much as I can. Always trying to learn, always trying to get better. So thanks for having me on, man. I'm, I'm excited about it. No problem. I, you know, I think I first heard of you, uh, you know, I, I guess your most polarizing, probably famous client too, Johnny Manziel, uh, several years ago. Uh, but since then, I mean, you've had a ton of clients. Now Johnny's back uh, on the client list again, now playing. See if they had a game the other night, didn't they? I saw Masoli was playing. I, I, they did, yeah. They lost in Calgary. It was their first opener. Um, I didn't catch most of the game. Johnny's still trying to figure out, you know, that sport. It's a whole yeah. different thing, as you know. And so he had something like seven or eight practices all through camp. And so he's trying to figure it out. So he's not playing yet. But Jeremiah Masoli, who's a damn good player, kid from Oregon, I'm sure you remember him. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think he transferred to Ole Miss. And he got a pretty decent game, but they came up a little short uh, there against Calgary and they're staying on the West Coast or, or thereabouts to play Edmonton this week. So I've, I'm now the CFL guru. I've, a lot, you know, I've learned a lot about the, the league, the sport, and how it all works. And it's a fascinating situation and really fun to watch. So I would encourage well, everybody actually, to check start, it out. Let's start with Johnny. It's actually pretty cool because when I was in the league, I don't think it was easy to find the games. I mean, I flip it on. I'm like, oh, that's Masoli. That's Johnny's team. They're, they're on ESPN now. So even if he doesn't play right. this year, it's a two-year contract. If he plays next year, I heard June Jones actually on NFL Network saying he thinks Masoli will get some looks this year at the end of the year. So if Masoli moves on to the NFL, maybe Johnny has a chance to start next year. But all the teams are going to be able to scout him because he's going to be on ESPN over their summer break. Yeah, and it's exactly anything else right now. And it's funny I could never find a game either. I remember months ago when Johnny and I were kind of vetting the opportunity and. He's like, well, shit, let's, let's get on and uh, watch a game. And we're yeah. just trying to YouTube games to watch some tape, right? And, uh, and we finally found some stuff. We're like, whoa, 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 why are they punting on third down? Like, it's, you know, shot clock's like 20, 20 seconds. So it's like, it is very fast-paced. And now I know all of his games are kind of on ESPN+. Plus. So I know they got my three ninety nine a month or whatever it is to be able to check the games there and kind of stream them. So, anyway. You know, I, I think a lot of people talk the talk, you know, about – they want to be in the NFL. They want to be in the NFL. But eventually that, you know, I, I've seen guys get cut or whatever. It just ends. But they still may have the ability to play. And the CFL, especially younger players, you got to sign typically for two years. So you're kind of stuck up there. And a lot of guys don't want to do it as a Canadian football league. He kind of put his money where his mouth is uh, and did it. And, you know, I think a lot of people – we're somewhat shocked, like, wow, he actually did it? Because I think we've heard a lot of players over the years drop the CFL and then never even cross their mind oh. to go up there. Now he's up there. Yeah, no. And he doesn't I, have I the totally ability. Agree. Like, let's just say he was the MVP of the league this year. Somehow he starts, and he couldn't come back this year, could he? He's up there for two years. That's a loaded question, John, one that I vetted very, very heavily um, and looked at uh, with, you know, all the way up and down their league. So I think – you know, we'll see what happens. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't say never say never. I think there's some possibilities and some, some options we've we've looked about and discussed. But, uh, yes, it's a two-year commitment at the end of the day, at least. So he's okay with staying up there for two years if he has to? Oh, yeah, man. Look, he's just turned 25 years old. I mean, he's still young. And at the end of the day, like you said, a lot of guys, oh, I love football, I love football. Like, how far are you willing to go to get what you want? Whether it's in broadcast, radio, NFL front offices, being an agent, like – I know my story. I know your story. It's like how, you know, how much shit are you willing to eat to get to where you want to get to? Yeah. And he's coming down a whole different path a than lot. he was holding that trophy coming out of A&M as a first-round pick. And 
Johnny is very self-aware and he understands that. So when I took him back on as a client, we didn't talk about football for the whole first year and we just got his life in order and, and helped him do a lot of the off the field things and continue to get the help that, that he needs. Like a lot of us do in a lot of areas of our life. And, um, and he was willing to do anything. So man, we did the spring league to put the helmet back on, take some hits, get in shape, all of that before we even did the CFL. And so he, like you said, I, I, I'm proud of him for putting his money where his mouth is and saying, look, I want to go play football. I want to be around a group of guys that have a common goal and that work hard for something. That's what I miss the most is that locker room. Let's go do this thing. So um, he's doing it. You fired him once upon a time. I mean, you guys came a long I did. way. I mean, was that? I did, yeah. Obviously, was that was the probably the lowest moment of, his, you know, of some of his career. Was that hard for you? Oh, man, it was the toughest thing I've ever had to do in my career. I've, I've never had to let a client go. And, you know, him and I had a lot of heart-to-hearts. And at the end of the day, you know, I do this for all of my guys, you know, to, to get the best out of them. And, and it got to a point where, you know, I was already looking for the next opportunities, the next situations, the next deals. And, you know, Johnny would be on his best behavior until he knew he was good at his next spot. And it did. It sounds cliche, but it got to the point where I felt like I was, I was damn good at what I did but it was almost to my client's detriment. And that was a real conflict for me where, okay, I've got your next situation maybe after Cleveland or whatever it is figured out already. I need you to be great for a month. And he would do that. And then the situation would come about and it was wheels off again. And I said, you know what? It's to the point where it's hurting you personally. Um, You know, and I made a promise to you and your family coming into this thing that, um, that I'm always going to do what's best for you personally first and business will always come second. And that's just who I am as a man and the promise I make to my guys. And, when, when it got to that point, I, I knew I had to do what was right for, for him long term. And, you know, professionally, it was the hardest thing I ever, you know, have done. I mean, I walked away from millions of dollars in deals that I had negotiated off the field. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's real business. That's real money. Put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that stuff. But at the expense of, of his personal life and knowing that we needed to get him some help, um, I had to walk away. And um, I'm glad I did because... He did help. You know, I was still very involved in his personal life after that. I just walked away professionally and continued to help him. And then it came full circle about a year and a half later when he showed up and said, EB, you're, you're the one person that's always been there, always done what's best. And, you know, not the one person, along with his family, friends, now his wife. And, you know, I want to give this thing another shot professionally. Can we explore that? And I said, if you do A, B, C, and D, I'll look at it. And, uh, and he did them all. And it's been great now. So that was that story. Well, that's cool, man. I, I, I would imagine, because I know I do, you know, get emails or DMs or whatever about people looking to get into the media or get into how I got into scouting. Uh, I'm sure you get a lot of, you know, how do I get into becoming an agent? How do I become an agent? You know, oh, man. I, so I, what's your story, bro? Like, wh- how did it come? Just maybe start <laughs> in high school. Did, did you, yeah. you know, where you're from, where you went to college, kind of how led you to where you're sitting now? Yeah, well, I definitely get multiple requests a week for advice. I, I try to help out the young guys as much as I can because I know nobody really responded to me coming up. And so, um, you know, try to advise as best I can. I'm not one of these guys that says, no, never be an agent. It's the worst profession ever. I mean, I love what I do. It's been my passion. I, you know, I found what, what I feel like I'm, you know, blessed to be able to do and, and what I'm good at, where my talents are in play every day. And, you know, I started off from San Antonio, Texas. Um, down south, I ended up going to undergrad at Texas Tech University, and uh, there I just became really tight friends. It, it's like a lot of guys that entered the business with Cliff Kingsbury, who's the head coach out there now. He was the quarterback at the time, going into his sophomore year, and uh, and his teammate Wes Welker, who went on to 
arguably, I think, should be a Hall of Famer. I mean, Wes was an absolute beast when you stack up kind of his numbers and his what he did against a lot of other people. And so you guys are you guys are all the same age, the three of you. Yeah, we were all the same age. Yeah, Cliff was a year older actually, but Wes was was my age, and we kind of came in. So Cliff was taking that starting role, and I was kind of I didn't play football, so I was kind of I, I guess you could say the smart, good friend that they could trust and rely on, and. You know, junior and senior year, agents started coming around, hitting them up like crazy, and they just kind of started passing me their cell phones. Hey, EB, will you help me with this process, man? Will you will you come sit into this meeting? My parents can't make it up to this one or whatnot. And um, so I kind of just helped, you know, the vetting process. Next thing I knew, every agent in the country was hitting me up, trying to get to those guys. And um, You were their posse. I, I was kind of the posse, man. I was kind of the you know, kind of ask the right questions in meetings and try to figure out what all these agents were about, where they came from, what their different experiences and niches were. And, you know, that's how I really learned the business. At the time, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. So I didn't know. I knew it was going to be sports. I wasn't sure. Coaching in some aspects, the media, like, you know, I was trying to figure that out. After I sat through about three or four of those meetings, um, I said, you know, that's really interesting. You can take a guy all the way from A to Z. I love the marketing side. I love the legal side. I love the negotiations. And really, at the end of the day, just be in there for somebody, man, and help them develop um, and look out for their best interests, you know, all the way along, you know, every aspect of it, which which is a ton, especially now, you know, 13 years later. And so I, uh, I none of my family went to law school. I ended up, you know, researching kind of the top agents in the business. I saw that most of them had a law, a legal background. So I got myself into law school, got a master's in sports administration as well, and started my company, Burkhart Sports Enterprises, that first year in law school. Cell phone, business card. I had master's classes at night, law school all day. Had no idea what the hell I was doing. Who was your um, first client? My first client, because I sent Weston Cliff off with some other guys that I trusted, was a guy, I don't know if you remember, Vincent Meeks, the safety from Texas Tech. Could really, really run. Was a huge recruit coming in. Started as a true freshman. I think he was probably, by his senior year, about 35 pounds heavier than he should have been. Um, not quite the 4-3 guy anymore, but he, he gave me a shot. We ended up as an undrafted player in Washington's camp. Did not make their team, but uh, you know he believed in me. He's the first one to believe in me. That's so uh, sweet. He, was, he was the first one. Yeah. Do, was, do you uh, remember that draft. first that first deal you negotiated? Did you get that you know extra little signing bonus I, as an undrafted free agent? I do. I, I think it was like twenty five hundred bucks or whatever. I think I had a scratch and call. They're like, "Eb, we'll give the kid a thousand bucks." And I remember how proud I was calling him, going, "Dude." I got it up to twenty five hundred free taxi. <laughs> he was like, "Let's ride, easy. That's why you're my guy." And you know, now you just add three or four zeros to all those things. But it's really the same feeling, and the same work goes into every deal, whether it's an undrafted guy who you really believe in, or or Bradley Chubb, the number five pick of the draft. It's really about your want to and how hard you're going to push to maximize all of his opportunities. Who was your first client to get drafted? Do you remember? First client drafted was a. Uh, I don't remember. It was that following year. I think I had three drafted within a couple years. I, so you were basically so you were basically based. Texas Tech was kind of your home base. Got some of those guys. You know, you're what 24, 25 years old. How does then it grow over the next five, six years to like where you become an actual? You know, we're not just an agent with a couple undrafted free agents, but you know, a, a Rolodex of clients. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I ended up going out to law school out in Miami, Florida at St. Thomas University. Had a great sports administration master's program. And uh, I ended up down there. And then it just so happened Wes was cut from the Chargers that first year. Dolphins picked him up. And so Dolphins picked up Wes. So he was living out there in Miami, too. And 
I really just started hustling on the marketing end. I saw a niche there where, you know, I'd go make Wes $5,000 for a little appearance here, his teammates 7000 here, really just hustling to make these guys some money off the field um, and developing those relationships, helping out at every foundation I could, Super Bowl host committee. Um, I'm not real sure. Some of those guys ended up signing over with me. I partnered with the guy at the time. Our first real recognizable guy, we got wind of a guy out of Canada named, you, you've heard of him, named Sam Wake. Yeah. And uh, Wake was up there in the CFL uh, destroying people. I mean, it was one of those, like, obvious, like, oh, my God, yes. Like, that dude's a starting D-end in the NFL. Like, that's a 10-sack guy, which we don't fill that out very often. I understand how rare oh, and yeah. special. I went up to watch him, and, and we signed him and helped bring him down to Miami um, at the time, which was a sizable deal coming from the CFL. And um, from there, I, uh, you know, you just keep working. You put your head down. You sign two or three guys a year. And I looked up, and I graduated law school and got my master's four years later. And you know, had about 12, 13 clients, most of which no one had ever heard of still, but, you know, word of mouth travels quickly and you treat people right. And, you know, um, you know, I was fortunate and lucky in a lot of respects. Those relationships I had back at Texas Tech were, I mean, that staff was unbelievable. Mike Leach was the head coach. The offensive coordinate, co-offense coordinators were Dana Holgerson, who's at West Virginia now, and Sonny Dykes, who's been, you know, been all over the place, Cal, now he's at SMU. Yeah. The running back coach was Art Bryles, who went on to Baylor, to win 100 you know big 12 championships in a row coming from not winning a game in five years um kingsbury was the quarterback the fifth string quarterback was lincoln riley who's now at oklahoma um it's like a think, think tank was, think tank of geniuses i mean <laughs> it, it was unbelievable just that tree that originally started there and i had relationships with all those guys and so it, it's as you know very much a relationship driven business and you treat people right and you know I, i'm not the maybe the smartest guy in the world right but uh if you treat people right and work your ass off, I think you can accomplish anything. And now we've grown along with my partners to be, you know, definitely a top three uh, firm in terms of number of clients and contract center management in the NFL. I think we have 105 guys in the NFL and a coaching and executive division now with over 35 clients, um, you know, offices nationwide. And we're continuing to grow and, and grow around the right people. Well, I, you just had your highest drafted player ever in Bradley Chubb, who was, you know, as hyped of a defensive pass rusher as feels like maybe beside Clowney of, of anyone the last several years, you know, right up there, Miles Garrett, Khalil Mack. I mean, just, just the total package, you know, high character. Talk a little bit about the process of landing him. We, we all see when you're sitting in the draft room or I mean in the green room and he gets his name called, but what about, <laughs> right. you know, this time last year or as the fall comes, like when, when was the first time you met him? Uh, when's the first time you knew When's the first time that he told you, I'm in with you? I mean, what's it like? We all see the end result of you holding him, right. high-fiving him, hugging him. But what? Because you don't have that. It's not like you've known him since high school, right? You just get a short period right. of time while he's playing college football. Yeah. Yeah, no, the recruiting process, unfortunately, is three-quarters of the battle in our business. I mean, it, it's fierce. It's competitive. Everyone's obviously on a player like Bradley Chubb and offering everything under the sun and that's one where he, he comes from an unbelievable family, you know, and they, they wanted somebody who was going to take care of them on and off the field and, and always do the right things. And that's just who they are as people. So, I mean, some of the offers uh, they were getting were just unbelievable, but it's just, you recruit, you sit down with a family and a young man and you tell them who you are as a person and, and what you think you can do for them and why that's maybe different than some of the other things that have been done in the business. And, um, and you draw it out and you build a relationship. And so, uh, when, was the first you never, time, when was the first time you met him? 
So with Chubb, it was a Chubb was first time I met Bradley was about this time last year. I went up and you got to go through the whole compliance, you know, situation and, and meet with, you know, NC State and their officials and agent days and all of the, you know, North Carolina has a bunch of crazy laws where you can't even contact a player and all of this stuff. It's ridiculous. And he, can, he can go through um, that and meet with you because he's going to be a senior. Is that why? He's going to be a rising senior. Yeah. And like, as you know, 65% of the first round and first, second round now aren't. Yeah. Like coaches don't want them to be with agents. So it's unfortunate because what happens in those scenarios is these kids are trying to figure out Last who their minute. business partner and agents are going to be in two weeks. Yeah. And they take five meetings and everybody sounds the same. There's no relationship or trust built. And it's a real difficult situation. I don't know the right answer to it. But with Bradley, it was a long recruitment. I mean, I believed in him. Um, you know, I, I knew who he was as a person and who his family was. He's got an older brother as well. Um, who, who's a, you know, has played and was a, an all American player at Wake Forest. And I got, you know, so we, it, it was just a long drawn out process. I think I was probably at three of Bradley's games last year, you know, in person, just watching him play. And, um, so that, yeah, first, that first I, meeting happens, do you leave it going, okay, we got a chance, you know? No, because you always think you have a chance, right? Like, and I've thought for sure I was going to sign a guy and like, it's done. And then, you don't, right? Because there's always some weird stuff that happens at the end of the day. I left the first meeting going, that family is unbelievable. That's somebody that I would absolutely be honored to have an opportunity to represent. And I think that's really what first meetings are about. It's like I walk in, you can tell right away, they may not jive with me. I may not be what they're looking for. That's, and a, lot of, course, that's I, a lot of pressure. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've never met of, someone, you're trying to get them. It is, but it, it's not as much pressure as doing an $80 million deal for a player in free agency. If you can't handle a a recruiting meeting or process with a, you know, a young college player way before you know what he's going to be or what round he may go in. Um, then you're not cut out for the business. So I, there's always pressure involved. That's every day. So once you meet with them that first time, once the season starts, are there rules? Like, are you allowed to just, unlo- can you text with him whenever? Does he have to text you? How, how does that work? Every state's different. Every school's different. He's got to really reach out to you. So then it's like, really, you get the blessing to kind of meet the family even then, it's like I'd go to games and it was like you can't sit with the family that you. They may think you're going to buy them a bag of peanuts, meaning the school, which is ridiculous because yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't give them anything of value. Like there's all these ridiculous rules and regulations that don't pertain to any other business in America. Um, but you do what you got to do, and we don't break rules. Like I said, I represent NFL coaches, college coaches, executives, so we play by the rules, and they are what they are. And you know, it's really about trying to do the best you can to develop a relationship and show a family and a young man what you can do. And then obviously after you sign them, then it's, you know, executing the plan that you put together for that specific player. When was the first time he told you you were his guy? It wasn't until after his bowl game, you know? So like after the bowl game, which he didn't even play in this year, which I thought was a a smart move by him. Um, So after the bowl game, then it's kind of, Hey, you know, when can we get together? I'm taking final meetings or, or I'm with you. And, uh, what is my plan going to be? And and then you go sign. You said he didn't back to the bowl game really quick. He didn't play in that. That was was that because you weren't signed with him yet. Was that just his idea? Right. We see in a lot of players. Christian McCaffrey, Leonard Fournette did it last year. Was that just something he knew he was going to go so high? You know, it's like fuck it, I'm not going to mess with this. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, that was before I was involved, honestly, and I wasn't advising anybody. So I would say that was probably a family decision, knowing what I do of this family now. And do you advise that move I, personally? Like, if you have, uh, are given the power if, to? If they, ask, if they ask me, I would give them what I think, and every scenario is different. I mean, I was asked that by, I think, three kids in our draft class. Um, the only one that I felt like shouldn't have, you know, shouldn't play was, was Bradley due to his unique circumstances and where I felt like he was, you know, had an opportunity to go with what I knew about him and what the NFL people were saying about him and where he was at. So every decision and every plan for every unique client or recruit is very, very different, as you know, based on where they're at and, and what their goals are. So, Cause yeah. some, I mean, I'm a big believer. A guy like him has nothing to prove. But some guys, if you're a third rounder, you go to a bowl game and you're a wide receiver and you have 12 catches, you know, against a second round defensive back, you can you can make yourself a lot of money in that game. You can, and it's but look, as you not know, not a lot, but I mean, you can help. You can help you your can, stock. You can, but at the end of the day, if you're not showing that on film the previous 24 games, you're probably in trouble anyway. So you know, and so it's like I'm with you, but. My job, the lawyer in me and the agent in me, is always to protect the downside. Everybody wants yeah. to talk about the upside. Oh, my God, you can go make a ton of money in this game. Well, you can also tear your Achilles or ACL, and now you go to zero. You're a third-round pick. You're a top 100 NFL pick. You know, a lot of these guys, I mean, that's multi-millions of dollars, a couple of which are guaranteed. That's life-changing money, and you're going to go out there against, you know, UTEP and, and play in a, you know, a bowl game. I'm not going to call it meaningless because there's always stuff at stake, but – you know, there's a lot more downside there than there is upside to go catch 12 balls. Because if you're a third-round pick, you've caught more than 12 balls. And what else are you really showing, you know, in that game? So I, I see both. But at the same time, for a lot of young men, it comes down to the commitment they made um, to, to that, you know, their program and their teammates and the culmination of the season. And I get that. You know what I mean? Like, Johnny had won the Heisman Trophy. Like, he's, you know, he's representing the Heisman Trust. His players at A&M, they weren't playing for a national championship. They were playing Duke. Yeah. But it was like, you know what, I'm going I'm to finish this up. And I totally get that, too. And I know talking to Bradley after his decision was made, that was really, really hard on him because he came in with those guys. He came back his senior year with those guys. And even though they weren't competing for an ACC championship or a national championship, you know, that was the last time to put on a uniform with his boys. And, uh, and that's really special and important. But at some point, you got to look at the financial decision at stake, too, and, and weigh all the, the pros and cons and the ups side and the downside like every decision these young men should be making they the mmqb did an article on the draft process and the, i think draft night with bradley and one word you used in there a lot was floor you meant like you just talking about managing the downside yeah. managing the floor knowing the floor yeah. knowing what the floor would be obviously his floor in that article you talked about like the 49ers i think at nine were by far the lowest and there was almost no chance he was ever going to get there but it was somewhat of a surprise he went to five. You know, some people thought, are they really going to take yeah. a running back at two? They're going to take Bradley Chubb. How much effort, and I don't think people quite realize this that are, that are listening, do you spend, even with a guy like Bradley, calling the Browns, calling the Giants? Hell, I can't even, I guess uh, the Jets were taking third. You knew they were taking a quarterback. But just calling teams yeah. in the top of the, Tampa Bay, uh, John Lynch, just talking mm-hmm. to them and, and getting information for the, that last month before the draft. I mean, honestly, the last month isn't as crazy because a lot of the guys are kind the of co- started the combine. Then started the combine. It starts, yeah. I think for me, the tea leaves. It's always leading between the tea leaves. So, you know, we did over three hundred million in free agency. So I tell all these draft picks, like the biggest indicator, especially in that first round, is going to be on, in terms of what which way they may be leading. Everybody's a good player. Yeah. Saquon Barkley's a great player at two, right? Like 
are they going to go running back or DN? And the whole argument there, position, are the Browns going to go corner or there? You know, they got to guard Antonio Brown and AJ Green in that division. But you could argue pass rush helps all corners. So it's like, in terms of position specific, or if you're between the same guy to different, you know, the same position, different guys, you know, what those tea leaves, I think you can tell a lot in free agency what a team will do. I mean, I think you look at the Browns. Like, I know they like Saquon Barkley, you know, and they had the first and the fourth pick and, and determining on when or if they're going to take him. Well, you look at, they just gave Carlos Hyde a bag of money. They were a month, in March negotiating a new deal with, uh, with Duke Johnson. Yeah. So you don't go give Carlos Hyde $6 million a year and talk about giving Duke Johnson five and a half a year if you're then going to go draft Saquon Barkley with the first pick. And maybe they take him if he's there at four. But there's a lot of between-the-lines reading and tea leaves that I think a lot of people overestimate because the draft is the draft. And they go, oh, my God. You know, they got two picks. Saquon Barkley is the best player, for example, in their case. And I think all of that starts with we met with every single team in free agency at the NFL Combine. Um, like I said, we did over 300 million in deals and you can tell in those conversations, okay, this team's really targeting corners. And then when they don't get their corner, say the Browns or, or the corner, they, the three corners we knew they wanted due to free agency and offers they were making for some of our clients and many others, you can see, okay, that was a huge priority for them. They really might address that with these first four picks, right? And so, uh, it's just a lot going on. So hundreds and hundreds of hours to answer your questions. But it's not so much me just calling those relationships and go, what are you going to do? It helps half the free- time, even with me, they're, they're going to bullshit, right? And yeah. say, well, you know, he's looking good. So, um, you know, there's some that are like, look, E.B., if he's still there when we pick at X, we're sprinting to the podium and like popping champagne on ourselves. And we had two or three of those teams. So we knew who those were in terms of floors. Um, but at the top, the draft's a really funny animal. And, you know, for me, it's about having my client very prepared and having his family prepared and, um, and I know Bradley was, and he couldn't be happier about where we ended up for a lot of reasons. When you talk about, you know, they'll bullshit you, especially with the draft, eventually it's going to play out. But in free agency, with how much money's on the line, I mean, you had a Case yeah. Keenum, a quarterback. I mean, not often starting quarterbacks hit the open market. You get into this, you know, he was maybe not the first guy because of Kirk Cousins, the domino, who kind of repl- obviously replaced him in Minnesota. But the amount of how hard is it for you to kind of not necessarily play general managers, but use leverage, know what the number's going to be? I mean, this process, case key, I mean, that's a pretty big client when you factor in at quarterback money. Huge. Yeah, he's 18 plus a year for a guy who's never really gone into a season being the starter. Um, and you, nobody you've been a, you might have been the longest play. believer beside his parents because I've following you on Twitter. Yeah. You've been pumping up Case Keenum for years. Oh, you could see it in college. Like, and I know nobody wants to go spread you know spread content this and that. And we knew there's a very good chance he would go undrafted. Chase Daniels, another one of our guys, finished with the Heisman, threw the ball all over six foot whatever. Like Case is a or Chase also is a baller. Like there's no question in my mind when Chase gets in, he can do what Case did last year when given the real opportunity. Which it's an eleven on eleven sport, man. It takes a team, especially that position. You got to have weapons. You got to have perfection. Um, and so, man, I believe I've been believing in Case Keenum for shoot, going on eight nine years since I saw him his sophomore year at U, U of H, and had some coaches there that are like, "This guy's the ultimate leader." You ask anybody who ever played with the guy, he's just special. So from there on, it's it's a, you know a fight every day to get him that opportunity um, that he got. So when he did what he did and led them in the NFC Championship game and played as well as he did. Um, we knew this was his opportunity and, you know, along with my partners, um, as well, who, who play a huge part in everything we do. It was, uh, 
your leverage is everything. Like you said, we had options for Case. Um, we vetted him thoroughly, and um, and I think at the end of the day, he ended up in a really good situation with with a really good contract as well. When you talk about a quarterback and a free agent contract, what's the first thing you think of beside the football side, the fit and all that stuff? Is it guaranteed money? Is it average per year? Is it you know the signing bonus? What's the first number when I say Eric Burkhart, you're signing Case Keenum to a contract? Con- what's the first part of the contract your mind goes to? Long-term stability, ability to win. If you do that and you have that, everything else will be. So obviously the agent of me wants as much money as possible, guaranteed money. APY is a big deal, but it's really about the opportunity. And I think that's what he found in Denver. And, um, you know, the, the, the ability to be the guy, you know, and, and have that leadership and take over that locker room, I think, w- which is what was so appealing about the Denver situation. Um, the stability there with, with John Elway, they won a Super Bowl, what, three years ago? The defense, um, you know, some of the weapons they have. I mean, look at his receivers. It's a beautiful place to live. To answer your question, yes, quarterbacks are different, but every player is very subjective. And their free agency or their draft is very, very, very different. So, you know, Case is married, but he doesn't have children. So for some guys, it may be school district, city, state taxes. Some guys just want the most money possible. Um, sometimes the wives are making the decision. Sometimes it's all about the kids. We've had a free agent the last couple of years sign one-year deals, do very well, be in very high demand. He's got a special needs son. And so the, the ability to, the, the hospital's close by for what he's going through is a major factor in, in where he chose to go and leaving money on the table uh, for that. So um, every guy is very different. Obviously, if I had to answer one, it's the guaranteed money because that's the only thing that's going to give you stability in this league. Uh, no matter how good your receivers are, your O-line, or how much they're saying they believe in you day one of free agency, money talks. Um, but the contract kind of comes, I would say, second in terms of how you structure that contract um, and, and what that contract looks like. Longer term, shorter term, usually you give them more years, you're going to get more guaranteed money, but maybe not the average per year. You know, But maybe you want to hit the market depending on where the market's going, when the CBA is up. I mean, there's so many factors that go into everybody's deal. Um, and every deal is very, very different. But at the end of the day, it comes down to how much leverage you have um, to get them the most security you possibly can. Are, are there teams, I, I don't expect you to name them, but that are easier to deal with than others? Or for the, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> like, 100%. Like, when, yeah. you, when you look at a guy, you get a phone call, you're like, oh, my God. This is going to be a long day. Yeah, I mean... Yes and no. Look, if you have a great player, you're going to have options. But it's like, I would say easier to do. But deal you know, with most players in the NFL are not "quote unquote" great. You know, right? Most players in the right. NFL are right. all on that umbrella that at any moment they can be replaced because most guys don't make that much guaranteed money. That's true, and and, and they are. No matter what, unfortunately, players are expendable. It's the way the whole system and business is set up. And so, unless you have one of those truly, truly elite players. Um, and the market's still going to dictate what that looks like. I could have an elite player going to free agency, but if there's 10 other amazing DNs on the market, that's going to dilute the market a little bit and give me less options or less leverage with the team I'm dealing with to get a long-term deal. So all of it, but the fact is with DNs, they don't get to the market. So that's different. Quarterbacks don't get to the market. So in Case's favor, you know, you look at it, and but then the year he does, Kirk Cousins does, or whatever the case may be, right? And so it's always a supply and demand issue like every other business. Um, did you deal so with El- did you deal with Elway or do you deal more with the, once he 
once you talk to him about the initial he wants the quarterback, then do you deal with the contract negotiator? New England, we all think Belichick could negotiate the contract, could set up the special teams, could you know cut the grass. Uh, and then with the 49ers, John Lynch is pretty open about Parag negotiates the contract. Howie Roseman, kind of a hybrid, does a little bit of both. Yep. Uh, yep. Every team's different, and you clearly have to have a good relationship with everyone in the organization, but you end up dealing when it comes down to doing that contract with the contract guy, whoever that may be mm-hmm. in the organization, right? At the end of the day, the negotiation is going on. It depends, right? So with a quarterback, you're dealing with everybody, you know, at the top is typically on every scenario, you know, call, you know, email, communication, correspondence. But ultimately the contract guy is the one you're passing back and forth, you're redlining, you're going back and forth. And sometimes, you know, he's got to go back to the, to the, the man in charge, so to speak, and get authority and, he plays good cop, bad cop on that most of the time, right? And so you hit it on the head. Every scenario is very different. Um, every team does it a little bit differently. And you kind of, as an agent, you got to know what team you're dealing with and, and who you're dealing with to, to get the best, you know, result for your client. So did you lock the deal with Elway on the golf course? Uh, I wish I did. I did not. I did not. He, he, he probably plays more golf than if you every other general manager combined, you know he's got a good gig. You know he's John Elway. It's a great gig, and he, he's John Elway. He's great. So I'm look. I'm the biggest Bronco fan walking now. So if I can get out on the links with him this year, now that I got you know Keenum's running the offense and, and Bradley Chubb there, they use a fifth pick on on defense. Um, you know I'll probably be in a few Broncos games this year. So lunch is definitely on me if I can hit some golf balls with him. That's for sure. So when will you take your next uh, college meeting? I guess, you know, the summer's upon us. We're June 19th. Is that, is that what you're going to start attacking for the next month? Um, no, I had, I had two calls with college recruits and or their families this morning already. And uh, I had a meeting last week as well. So that's, that's year round. So uh, that, that doesn't stop going into next year. Got any names, or you can't uh, reveal that? I can't. I'm going to keep that one close to the best for now. Well, Eric, th- thanks a lot. I got people above me banging on my roof. Uh, taking off the roof, but uh, I appreciate you jumping on with me today, and sounds like uh, business is pretty good for Eric Burkhart. Hey, man, same with you. Appreciate you having me. Let's keep it rolling. I love what you're doing out there, and um, let me know if I can ever help you guys out. Thanks, bro. Have a good one. All right, John. Take care, buddy. Well, I'm glad I got Eric on the horn. Uh, You know, I don't think you often hear agents. Now, Drew Rosenhaus used to talk a lot to the media. He, He doesn't anymore, so... That was pretty cool about the Johnny saga and just kind of how, you know, you you recruit players. Just I, I don't know if you're going to hear that anywhere else. That's uh, that's why we have three and out podcasts to br- bring you a different perspective. But time for my favorite time of the week, the Middlecoff mailbag. I got a bunch of questions and what I'm going to do, like always, you go to iTunes, you go to uh, subscribe rate and in the review section, leave a question. I, I probably got like eight or nine. I'm only going to answer a couple and I'll just kind of, Keep spreading it out throughout the summer. We, we, we got a long summer here. Uh, I'm sitting here in my in my office watching the World Cup. Uh, it's, it's slow times. So we'll make this go. I'm, I'm still efforting a bunch of different guests. And we'll, we'll try to keep it loose. But let's start with uh, my first mailbag question from a mailbag question. Uh, do you view guys who have a lot to lose from a money perspective skipping voluntary off uh, OTAs? Or how do you view the guys? And then a bonus question about his alma mater, Penn State. After losing uh, Saquon, Deshaun Hamilton, and Gasecki, what is the best and worst case for Penn State? Let's start with the first question about the NFL. 
I, I, I think every player is different. Uh, for Aaron Donald and Khalil Mack, they have way too much on the line. They, they had to sit out OTAs. Julio, like, like I'm sorry, Julio, I, I just don't think the Atlanta Falcons are going to pay you. They've already paid you multiple times. Uh, for Odell, I, I do understand him showing up. I mean, his general manager is sick. He has a brand new coach. He's trying to show the owners that he's all in. Also, that he's healthy. I mean, last year he shattered his ankle. So I get why of all the group of guys he showed up. Uh, I talked about it last week, David Johnson. I, I don't know if much is going to come of it. Uh, he broke his wrist last year and missed the entire season. He's running back. But every player is different. Uh, you know, I, I think part of the reason that New England canceled practice, I, I think it was last week, and just Belichick let everyone go home early, is Tom Brady wasn't there. Well, you, the majority, every camp, unless the quarterback is hurt, the starting quarterback is there for voluntary and mandatory. So Belichick obviously isn't going to cancel all the you know voluntary work for the previous month. And Brady, I think, and Gronk did show up the week before. But if Tom Brady is not at camp, like I don't know how much you're really getting out of practice. Their quarterbacks are terrible. Uh, if Brian, if Tom Brady goes down, the Patriots are screwed. So I, I think, I, I know Colin mentioned that Belichick was kind of over it and just kind of losing his touch. To me, it had more to do with just Brady's not there. W- what are we going to accomplish? Uh, we can't run an offense. Our defense is not getting real looks. So, uh, you know, I, I don't really know why he set out. Maybe he's just old. Uh, I mean, he is old. But th- that was, to me, the biggest reason there. And then about Penn State, uh, I think James Franklin's really good, but I, I think losing Saquon is going to be really big. Now, if the McSorley, the quarterback, can have a Heisman-type season, which I don't think is out of the realm of possibility. I don't know if he's he's not as talented as Baker, but in college, he's definitely good enough to win them a lot of games. You know, the conference is really hard. I think Michigan's going to be a lot better. Obviously, Ohio State is always absolutely loaded. You know, Iowa's always tough. It's a, Wisconsin's really good. It's a very, very solid you, you could argue it's been the last couple of years probably the most consistent football conference. I, I don't count the bowl games. I really don't give a shit whether you win or lose a bowl game beside the playoffs because none of the bowl games really matter. Everyone has you know a different amount at stake. To me, the best case is they're somehow they make it the Big Ten Championship. And the worst case, uh, they, they can't replace Saquon Barkley and just kind of his shadow. And, you know, they go 8-4. and four. But let's just... James Franklin's good enough that even if in a quote-unquote down year, now they have recruited very well the last couple years, that eight and four, you can have a good season in the Big Ten and be 8-4, and four, lose a couple tight games. Uh, it's just it's hard. College football's tough. Uh, Jake asks, why are NFL contracts so perplexed versus NBA contracts? Not just the guarantees, but where they train in the offseason, deferring money. I, I think it all has to do with the guarantees. But I do think this, and I wrote about it last week on The Athletic. I don't think a lot of people understand when you get a signing bonus or true guaranteed money, that money you either have, like Matt Ryan got $100 million in true guarantee. The Atlanta Falcons have two options. They can pay that money within a year span. So they have one year till March 31st, 2019 to give him $100 million dollars. Now, obviously, the way it's set up on the books is different, but they have to get him the money within uh, basically a calendar year. Or, at the time of signing, they have to put all that $100 million in an escrow account. 
That's, you know, something that was collectively bargained a long time ago with the NFL. Like, part of the reason NFL contracts are complicated with guaranteed money is because you have to have it all up front. It's why, you know, I, I say, I've been saying on Twitter for a while, I can see the Raiders are kind of in a tough spot. Some of these cash-poor teams, if you don't have a lot of cash on hand, signing enormous signing bonuses are difficult. Like Derek Carr, for example, his true guarantee was $40 million. The Raiders had to have that $40 million in an escrow account when he signed the deal, or they had a year to get him the $40 million. It's kind of a complicated structure that I don't think a lot of people know about. And then the $70 million of injury, quote-unquote, guarantees, they have two years to pay it. So basically, you have two years to pay $70 million. I think Jimmy Garoppolo's number was like 41 and 74. So they had the year they had, or maybe it was 44. They had to have $40-plus million on hand, and then they have basically two years to pay the 74. Where if I sign an NBA player, like uh, let's say Steph Curry, when he signed his super max deal, Five years, $205 million, give or take a million. It's a lot of money. You pay that over five years. You know, I give him 25 this year. I give him 32 next year. Same with baseball. So all the money is guaranteed. But as a business, I don't have to have all the money on hand. So it is kind of complicated. I wonder if that's something. I, I think the next CBA negotiations with the players in the NFL is going to be one of the most fascinating negotiations we've seen in a long time because there are going to be a lot of complications and clearly there's a lot of money at stake. Now, I would bet on the owners. They're some of the best businessmen, not just in sports, but in America, in American history. So uh, I, I like their chances, but I do think it's going to be really complicated. And that's something that if the players are smart, you have to defer some of this money. Like some of these teams, you're better off if I can give you $120 million guaranteed, but I can pay you over five years. It makes a little more sense than if I pay you $80 million guaranteed, but I have to have it within 12 months. It, it, it just becomes very difficult. So I, I think there is language in the collective bargaining agreement that just makes these contracts tough. And I, most people don't understand. I don't fully understand it. Just talking with contract people I know in the league, uh, it, it's it's not easy. Uh, last question from Dane M. Value question. When teams get to work in their training camps, which, what's the date? June 20th. We're, we're over probably a month away. Most teams don't, you know, veterans probably the earliest would be right around a month from today. Uh, usually by the 25th, 28th of, of July, most camps have started. Do they assign some sort of skill productivity grade to their players? Is there some sort of calculation teams utilize using a productivity grade along with the player's salary to determine who to keep and who to cut? That's a hell of a fucking question. Uh, I I really think it's as simple as this. That during training camp, I I know at least with Andy Reid, for example, and I did this with Pat Hill at Fresno State, same concept, and most teams do this. You meet every night as a staff in training camp, so after practices at night, like 8 or 9 o'clock at night, and you go position by position. Who's doing well? Who's not doing well? And all that stuff is great. You know, you kind of ebb and flow. This guy's practicing well. This guy's not practicing well. And you're obviously keeping statistics on every drop pass, every pressure, you know, every tackle. Like, everything basically now with statistics is being accounted for in practice. The problem for that is... It's only weighted so heavily because the preseason games for guys on the bubble really matter. So you can love a guy in practice, and I've seen it when I worked in the league, and I've seen it 
after the league, like just as a media guy, you're like, damn, this guy's balling in practice. But until like preseason games happen, an undrafted free agent that balls in practice may suck in the game or vice versa. A guy that's just okay in practice, you know, a wide receiver that can't really catch in practice goes in a couple preseason games and has three touchdowns. I was at, I vividly remember this, and my memory's not great, is I went my first year in the NFL, I drove with Lewis Riddick, who was our pro director at the time in Philadelphia, and I watched Victor Cruz, who was an undrafted free agent from UMass. It was the Giants versus the Jets. I think it was the first preseason game of the year. Uh, or it was preseason, like basically preseason week one. So the, their first, each of their first game. He had three touchdowns. No one really even knew who this guy was. And, you know, I, I followed the Giants because they were in our division really closely in training camp, all the news and notes. And it's not like they were, you know, standing on the table and he was dominating in practice. But once he had that game, everyone in the press box, all the scouts were like, he's making the team. So to me, there is values like you can overvalue practice, but when the preseason game comes for guys on the bubble, same with older players, like older vets that may make a lot of money. Because if I keep a veteran player that's a vested veteran, I think that's, you know, over four years in the league, their contract, if he's on the week one roster, is guaranteed for the season. It's why you see some vet, you know, like salary cap casualties. Guys that, you know, if my undrafted free agent is just as good as the vet, I'll keep the undrafted free agent because one, he's cheaper, and two, I can cut him any time and not guarantee to pay him. So there is no, like this is a hard part about football where the analytics come in for like baseball. It's pretty black and white. Football, there are so many variables. And it's like, how do you value a practice, you know, in August 1st compared to the third preseason game? Now, obviously, there is also an element of, some of your veterans, you're just going to, like a guy in his fourth, fifth, sixth year that you've drafted, you're just going to ride or die with whether he struggles, and that's kind of set in stone. Like the majority of NFL rosters, you know, give or take, you know, five, ten people at max are pretty set going into training camp. There's just your few swing spots. And until you play the preseason games, it's hard to gauge because guys, and this is the one thing I learned at training camp at both college and the pro level. It's, it's different in the pros because you play preseason games. Like in, in college, you don't you just scrimmage yourself until you play that week one game. So there's like, God, I think this guy's really good, or I think this freshman is really good, or I think this sophomore is taking a big step. But until I line up, if I'm USC against Alabama week one, or if I'm Florida against Michigan week one, I don't truly know. We're in the NFL, I get a pretty good gauge. Like some undrafted free agent that's with the threes come preseason week one, if he keeps balling out in practice, then the games, maybe by week preseason three, I'm repping him, mixing him in with the ones. So if I'm, you know, hypothetically the Tennessee Titans, you know, I'm playing the Houston Texans, I guess they might not play, but like the Arizona Cardinals in preseason week three, and my undrafted free agent, let's say is a wide receiver, makes a couple plays on Patrick Peterson, I know he's making the team. So it's just, it's an inexact science. It's hard. I think I would imagine with the influx of analytics and just that guys in front offices, they've attempted to make, you know, formulas for this, but I don't, and listen, I'm no genius here. I don't know if it's even possible to create a formula that would be black and white. Now, maybe there would be things to help you, but the the, the weight of preseason games and just, just the feel when you watch a guy to kind of know like this guy's got something. And I think as fans, as everyone that's going to watch, you know, the games during August, you kind of know 
when you see a, a dude, you know, show out. And, and there's also a big difference in this. Productivity in the preseason, like in the fourth quarter, doesn't mean much. You know, just because you rush for 100 yards, well, if you rush for 100 yards in the fourth quarter against, you know, a bunch of guys that are not going to be playing ever in the NFL, I, you don't put much weight to it. So it's it, it's really difficult. That's a, that's a fantastic question. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week. Uh, you know, talking more football. Talking, keep your questions coming. iTunes, subscribe, rate, and in the review section, leave your question, and I'll get to them right here on Three and Out, brought to you by the Colin Coward Podcast Network. MTV's official Challenge Podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at First Listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.